Hello everyone, welcome to Biota. I'm your host, Phil Gibson. As we come to the end of what has been a challenging, at times painful, and fundamentally bizarre year, I thought I'd deviate from the Biota podcast format that I've used previously and experiment with a different kind of format that I'm calling Missing Links Episodes. Instead of exploring one topic in detail, I want to make episodes from time to time where I will briefly explain a scientific idea or concept, or or maybe I'll talk about different aspects of being a scientist or a science teacher. I'm calling these Missing Links episodes because I want them to help make connections among different kinds of ideas and concepts in science. So we'll see how that goes in the upcoming year. But now, since the year is winding down, I thought I would make my contribution to a fairly common practice at this time of year, and give my end-of-year list of what I think are some some of the interesting science findings from the past 12 months that might have slipped under your radar while everything else was going on. So what I've done is come up with a list of the top five stories that, that caught my attention over the past year. The stories I've chosen are ones that have used creative and interesting combinations of techniques or approaches to answer some questions that are really breakthroughs in their own right and tell us something that we didn't know about the world before. These are stories that just made me stop and think about how cool science is and how great it is to be a scientist. So let's get started. I'll begin with a story about a discovery made about one of my favorite animals, duck-billed platypus. Not only is this species a fabulous example of evolution in mammals, but researchers at Northland College in Ashland, Wisconsin, and Colorado State University in Fort Collins discovered that they have biofluorescence. Biofluorescence is not the same as bioluminescence that we see in fireflies and some species of fish. Bioluminescence is when light is produced from a chemical reaction that gives off a small amount of light. You know, that's sort of how things like a glow stick work. But biofluorescence is when a surface absorbs light at one wavelength and then emits light at a slightly longer wavelength, giving it sort of a glowing appearance. This phenomenon has been observed in some marine animals, but recently it was discovered in some terrestrial animals too, like opossums and flying squirrels. As for the platypus, under so-called white light in the visible spectrum that humans can see, A platypus has brown fur, but when researchers took platypus furs that were part of the museum collection and placed them under UV light, they saw that the fur glowed. The fur was absorbing the short UV wavelengths of light that humans can't see, and it emitted a cyan to greenish colored light that the scientists could see. The pattern was slightly different between the dorsal and ventral surfaces, but it was pretty much the same for male and female fur, so there was really no evidence of sexual dimorphism in this coloration pattern. This finding, of course, led to the question of why do they do this? Why glow? Is it an adaptation or just some artifact of their hair chemistry? One idea that's stimulating a lot of research recently is predator avoidance. The animals that have this trait are all nocturnal, and light at night is enriched in UV light relative to daylight, so it would make sense that this would be an adaptation for life at night. Biofluorescence in flying squirrels is thought to be an adaptation to avoid predators by camouflage or mimicry. These squirrels biofluoresce pink, and they may be able to hide among lichens that grow on trees and also biofluoresce the same color. Now, depending on their predator's vision, this could be a very effective way to hide on the side of a tree. But some owl species also fluoresce pink on their undersides, just like these squirrels. So maybe flying squirrels are mimicking the owls to deter predators that way. As far as the platypus, Maybe the biofluorescent patterns on their fur might also provide a similar kind of camouflage that helps them hide when feeding underwater. When a platypus swims, it closes its eyes, so this biofluorescence isn't going to be something that will be useful to them underwater. But 
if it alters how potential predators might see them, or maybe helps them blend into the aquatic vegetation, then the benefit is obvious. There is still a lot more to tease out of this discovery about this interesting system, and definitely more species need to be looked at in the future to see how broadly biofluorescence has evolved in mammals. But for now, if you want to check out the really cool pictures from their work and learn more about this research, you can find it in the article titled Biofluorescence in the Platypus, Ornithorhynchus anatinus, and you can find this in the journal Mammalia. The lead author is Paula Spaeth Onik. My second story is about the discovery of a gathering of humans, but it comes from a time way before social distancing was a thing. A research team led by Kevin Hatala at Chatham University in Pittsburgh, as well as other collaborators at George Washington University, Appalachian State University, and the Smithsonian Institution, they reported their discovery of a collection of over 400 fossilized human footprints. Like other ancient footprint discoveries, these were made and preserved in the ash of a volcanic eruption. These new fossils are from the late Pleistocene, and they were excavated near Ngari Cerro in Tanzania. They're estimated to be somewhere between 5,700 and 19,000 years old. This discovery is the largest collection of fossilized footprints ever found. Looking at the features of the footprints, the researchers were able to estimate that they were made from a group of about 17 individuals. It probably contained 14 adult females, two adult males, and a juvenile. The footprints indicate that some were walking together with about the same speed and gait. Other footprints showed someone walking rapidly and then slowing down. We can't know for sure, but the researchers think that these data indicate some type of social interaction taking place as they walk, and this is based on how the fossil footprints match patterns we see when modern humans walk and talk together. Other fossil footprints were going in a different direction, and they clearly indicate someone moving fast and running through the area. The researchers speculate that this group might have been out foraging when they made these prints. To learn more about this research, you can read the paper Snapshots of Human Anatomy, Locomotion, and Behavior from Late Pleistocene Footprints at Ngari Cerro, Tanzania. You can find this in Scientific Reports of the journal Nature. My next choice also has to do with fossils, but it's particularly interesting to me because it has a link between two of my favorite scientific topics, plant anatomy and forensics. From the field of dietary paleoecology comes a discovery by a group of Canadian researchers at the Royal Terrell Museum of Paleontology in Alberta, Brandon University in Manitoba, and the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatchewan. This research team found and analyzed the fossilized last meal from the stomach of a fossilized armored dinosaur in the genus Borealopelta. It's a kind of notosaur. Notosaurs are short-legged dinosaurs that walk on all fours and have heavily armored plates on their back and head. Researchers have never had this kind of detailed look at an ancient herbivore's stomach contents. They found that the stomach was well-preserved and its contents were 88% leaf material, most of it ferns and early cycads that were easily identified by their cellular and anatomical features, things like sporangia and their, their vascular tissue. They also found woody material and charcoal, indicating that just like herbivores now, this paleo-herbivore was feeding on the young tender shoots and leaves that were sprouting in an area that had probably recently burned and was undergoing succession. To me, it's fascinating to think about how this dinosaur, just doing its thing millions of years ago, would die, but eventually it would make this incredible contribution to science and give us a glimpse into the past. It would fill in, you know, a missing part of one moment in one day in the vast history of Earth. 
You can read the paper titled Dietary Paleoecology of an Early Cretaceous Armored Dinosaur or Nishia Notosauridae based on analysis of stomach contents, and it is published in the journal Royal Society Open Science. The lead author is Caleb Brown. My fourth story is also about plants, but instead of plants that were eaten, this research is about plants that eat animals. Carnivorous plants that trap and eat animals is one botanical topic that interests almost everyone. Researchers in this past year shared the work they did to discover the genes that allowed these plants to change their position in the food chain and be both producers and predators. Researchers in a large collaborative group from the Julius Maximilians Universität in Würzburg, Bavaria, Germany, and the University of Okazaki in Japan, they compared the genomes of three carnivorous plants in the sundew family, and those species were the ever-popular Venus flytrap, the spoon-leaved sundew, and the waterwheel plant. All of these species use modified leaves as traps to capture their prey. What the researchers wanted to know is if carnivory involved the evolution of a whole new set of genes to give the plants this new ability to eat animals. They predicted that it would require a lot of new genes to be able to do this. By comparing the genomes of these three species, they actually found that the genes that allow them to be carnivorous are the result of a gene duplication that occurred in their last common ancestor. What is unique, though, and quite surprising, is that the genes that were duplicated and gave them this gift of carnivory are modifications of genes that normally function in the roots of plants. I mean, that's mind-blowing to think that they didn't need new genes to disrupt their role in the food chain. They co-opted and diversified an existing set of genes to give them this new adaptation. But it totally makes sense. I mean, when you think about it, I mean, what do roots do? They absorb nutrients. And what do the carnivorous plants get from the prey that they trap? They dissolve them to get nutrients just like a root does. These plants are an example of what evolution always does. There was mutations that natural selection acted upon to come up with this brand new function for these existing genes. There's still a lot more to figure out about this system, but this is a really good step forward in untangling one of the most interesting phenomena in botany. You can read more about this work in the paper titled Genomes of the Venus Flytrap and Close Relatives Unveil the Roots of Plant Carnivory in the journal Current Biology. My last story involves an exceptionally creative application of modern tools to conduct what I think is really groundbreaking research that I think we will literally be hearing more about in the future. For what I guess is my choice of the coolest scientific study I heard about in the past year, I picked research conducted by archaeologists from England and Germany who collaborated to help a 3,000-year-old mummified Egyptian priest named Nessie Amun to speak. The Egyptian priest Nessie Amun was a scribe and priest at the Temple of Karnak in the ancient city of Thebes around 1099 to 1069 BCE. Part of his job at the temple would have involved speaking, chanting, and singing as part of different rituals. After he died, he was mummified in an elaborate ceremony. His mummified body and sarcophagus were in exceptional condition when they were discovered in 1824. Since then, Nessie Moon has shared the secrets of ancient Egypt with archaeologists for almost 200 years. Of particular interest to a group of current researchers was Nessie Moon's exceptionally well-preserved larynx and vocal tract. Researchers used CT scanning to make a map of Nessie Moon's vocal tract and take other measurements so that they could construct and print a 3D model. The model was then combined with an artificial larynx sound synthesizer called the vocal tract organ to make a vowel sound somewhere between a short A and E. Now, this is clearly a long way from forming full words and sentences, 
but it is a first step. It proves it can be done, and who knows where it could go from there. Now, here's the one little bit of the story that really makes me wonder about things, and it's what made this research stand out for me. The authors point out in their paper that a fundamental belief in Egyptian culture during Nesiamun's time, and, and I'd imagine even for many people today, is that, quote, to speak the name of the dead is to make them live again, end quote. Text written in hieroglyphics on the inside of Nesiamun's sarcophagus states that he wanted to be able to speak even after his death. The researchers decided that because of this wish that he made 3,000 years ago, that it, quote, made Nesiamun the ideal subject for the Voices of the Past project, end quote. I couldn't agree more. Like I said, this is just a first step. But imagine being able to visit a museum exhibit someday and hear Nesiamun tell you about his life in his own voice. You can learn more about this research in the journal Scientific Reports, and the paper is titled Synthesis of a Vocal Sound from the 3,000-Year-Old Mummy, Nessia Moon, True Voice, lead author D.M. Howard. Video and audio to hear the vocalization can be found at various places online. So that brings us to the end of this first Missing Links episode. Before I go, I want to say that the past year has been a rough one for all of us. Things are very different now, and it's especially different if there's someone not with you right now that was there a year ago. But I firmly believe what Nessia Moon believed that if we continue to remember and say their names, they will always be with us. With that, I want to wish you all the best in the upcoming year. I hope that you will join Biota in Season 2 as we try some new things in our quest to bring you interesting stories about science. So once again, thanks for listening, have a great day, and take very good care of your genetic material. All opinions expressed here are those of the author alone. Biota is a production of Under the Juniper Studios. 